0: Well, good morning, Crossview. What a great privilege it is to be together this morning. My name's Mike Thornton, and it is our great privilege to open the Word of God together. We're going to be looking at John chapter 13, verses 31 to 35, and our goal is to understand the intent of the text That may sound familiar to you. Pastor Brad used to talk to us all the time about understanding the intent of the text and then how that applies to us today. Uh, First though, I thought I'd start with some dad jokes. What's a dad joke? A dad joke is clean humor that makes you laugh and groan at the same time. So you ready? I built a model of Mount Everest and my son asked if it was to scale. I said, no, it's to look at. A ship carrying red paint and a ship carrying blue paint collide in the middle of the ocean. Both crews were marooned. If a pig loses its voice, does it become disgruntled? Did you know your pupils are the last part to stop working when you die? They dilate. Now, let's pray as we open the word of God together. It is such a privilege to gather together, whether in person or online, and hear the truth of your word. We are grateful, O God, for this privilege and this responsibility Help us to hear your truth. Holy Spirit, would you speak to us and change us as a result of the truth of your word today? Amen. We're in the church season known as Eastertide. By the way, Alyssa from our church staff did this beautiful graphic. And I don't know how much time you've spent looking at this graphic, but I find it fascinating. Because she put the months of the year in the center and then color-coded the the church calendar seasons on the outside. And here's the quiz to see how well you've been paying attention. Every time we change seasons, the background changes. Have you noticed that? When we were in Lent, it was purple. And now we're in Eastertide, and it's white. When we get into Pentecost, it'll be red in the background. So that just, Alyssa is so cool. She does such a great job. So Eastertide, the season that we're in now in the church calendar, is the time that we celebrate the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Over, at the, past, or over the past several weeks, we've been looking at the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, the times that Jesus uh, talked and spoke to his disciples after the resurrection. Now we're going to shift and look at some of those appearances of Jesus where he was giving them instructions before the death and resurrection. So I've entitled this sermon, What Does Love Look Like?, because the passage we're looking at today talks a lot about that. Now, there's some other things as well, so we're going to spend some time kind of setting the scene and understanding what the passage is about. Uh, We're going to look at John 13, 31 through 35. Let me read this for you. As soon as Judas left the room, Jesus said, The time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory, and God will be glorified because of him. And since God receives glory because of the Son, he will give his own glory to the Son, and he will do so at once. Dear children, I will be with you only a little longer. And as I told the Jewish leaders, you will search for me, but you can't come where I'm going. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love, wanted, love each other, just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Now, here's the setting or the context for this passage. Jesus and the disciples have gathered in a room together. We call this the upper room to celebrate the Passover meal. John gives us a detailed account of what Jesus told his disciples in this specific setting, um, this section in the Gospel of John, John ch- chapters 13 through 17, is called the Upper Room Discourse. The passage that we're looking at takes place relatively soon in that evening. Uh, so you kind of have the setting of what's going on here. John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17, opens with Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. The leader of the group, the one who was in charge, put on a robe, got on his hands and knees, and washed the feet of the disciples. We'll come back to this again later, because that's very significant. Next, in chapter 13, verses 18 through 30, Jesus shocks all of them by saying one of them was going to betray him. The guys were confused and they asked, Wait a minute, what do you mean? They wondered who would do such a thing. John asked Jesus, and Jesus told him it would be the one to whom he gave the bread. Jesus then gave bread to Judas and instructed him to hurry and do what you are going to do. Verse 30 tells us that Judas left at once, going out into the night. Now, some observations about Judas. Judas was one of the 12 original disciples that Jesus had called and asked to follow him during the time of his ministry. He spent time with Jesus. He knew him well. Mark tells us that Judas approached the religious leaders earlier in the week of Passover to betray Jesus. Now, the religious leaders didn't want to arrest Jesus in public or during the Passover celebration because they didn't want to start a riot but they did want to arrest him. Judas came and offered the religious leaders an opportunity. He was an insider and knew the schedule. He could give them Jesus at an ideal time. So John sets the stage really well, telling us that Judas left the group and went out into the night. Get the significance? Went out into the night to meet with the religious leaders. So that's the setting of this passage. Jesus is speaking to his disciples in a room right before the night of his death. Now, let's look at our passage again. Would you pull up John 13, 31 to 35? These five verses have four main sections. First, the very first phrase, Judas is identified as the traitor and leaves the room. Secondly, Jesus talks about his glory and the glory of the Father. Frankly, that part's hard to understand. I'll try to explain it to you. Thirdly, Jesus tells them that he's only going to be with them for a little while longer. And then finally, Jesus gives them a new command. Now, verse 31, the very beginning, gives us some, new info- or some important information the rest of what happens in the whole upper room discourse all of john 13 through 17 does not include judas judas has now left what jesus shares with his disciples is meant for his followers not the traitor or the crowds or the religious leaders so it's important to note that now john 13 31 through 32 Jesus said, the time has come. When you read the Gospel of John, over and over again, Jesus is confronted with situations where people are trying to make him do something, and he says, my time has not yet come. He says that over and over again. Not now. The time has come. His time is now. What time is this? The time for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. All right, time out. Who's the Son of Man? Jesus uses this title, this term, 81 times in the Gospels. It's his favorite term for himself. It originally comes from Daniel chapter 7. So I'm going to flip back and read this to you. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through uh, 14. As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one, God the Father, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. The Son of Man refers to the Messiah, who is led into the presence of the Ancient One, another title for God the Father. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world. People from every nation would obey him. His rule is eternal, and his kingdom would not be destroyed. When Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he is clearly indicating he is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of this prophecy in Daniel. When Jesus uses the term glory, he uses it in several contexts. So when you go back to uh, John 13, he says, The time come, has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. So when Jesus uses this term glory, he uses it in a couple of different contexts. Almost always through the course of the gospel, when he uses the term glory to refer to himself, he's talking about his death. When he uses the term glory to refer to God the Father, he's talking about God's ultimate plan for saving the earth, for saving uh, a group of people. It includes the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, and salvation by faith in the finished work of the cross. So when Jesus uses the term glory, he uses it in two different ways, and that's important for understanding this text. Go back to verse 31. The Son of Man, Jesus, is going to die and enter his glory. Because Jesus is a willing sacrifice and does the work God has called him to do, God's plan is complete, and God receives the glory. God the Father will be glorified because of the work that the Son of Man does. All right, so, man, I hope that you're beginning to get the sense here of what's going on. The time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory, and God will be glorified because of him. And since God receives glory because of the Son, he will give his own glory to the Son, and he will do so at once. And since God receives, uh, remember in Daniel 7, the Son of Man receives glory, honor, and sovereignty from God. Jesus said that the prophecy in Daniel is directly fulfilled in himself. The prophecy is being fulfilled right now, not in the future, right now. The disciples were going to be able to watch it happen right now. One of those really poignant moments as well. Jesus is telling them, I'm going to die soon. Just in case they hadn't understood it yet, Jesus tells them again that the time of his death is near. He warns them that he was only going to be with them for a little while longer. Now, dear children, I will be with you only a little longer in verse 33. And as I told the Jewish leaders, you will search for me, but you can't come where I'm going. Because I'm going to die. Here's the good news for the disciples. In the next chapter, John 14, Jesus tells the disciples he's going to prepare a place for them. He's going to go to heaven and prepare a room for them. He will welcome them in eternity with the Father. They would spend their eternity in heaven. Not yet, but at some point. Now the bad news. Look at John 8:21. Later, this is Jesus talking to the Jewish re- religious leaders. This is an incident that happened several months prior. Later, Jesus said to them again, I am going away. You will search for me, but you will die in your sin. You cannot come where I'm going. So look at the parallels and the differences between the the passage. Jesus again says he's going away and that they wouldn't be able to come with him. Note the contrast. Jesus tells the religious leaders they would die in their sin. Jesus makes it very clear. Trust Jesus and he prepares a way for you in heaven. He prepares a room for you. Turn away from Jesus and trust anything else. Religion, following the rules, good deeds, and you will die in your sins. I want you to hear this today. Jesus does a lot of things, but one of the things he's very clear about is you have a choice, and it's an all-or-nothing choice. Are you going to choose Jesus and live, or do you choose anything else and die in your sins? Which one will you choose? Now look at John 13, 34 through 35. Now that we've done the introduction and we've seen the context for the passage, now the the part that I really want to camp on. Verse 34, so now, so now. Jesus says, I have washed your feet. I have sent the traitor away. So now, in view of this, I have some final instructions for you. I'm giving you a new commandment. I want you to hear this. This is really important. Love each other. Now, raises all kinds of questions. Why is this a new commandment? First, Jesus gave us the greatest commandments in Mark 12, 29 through 31. Let me read those to you. The most important commandment or the most com- important law Answered Jesus is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no greater command than these. In essence, what Jesus did was took the Ten Commandments and distilled them into two commandments. Love God and love one another. He stated the essence of the law in a very succinct form. So it is a new command that it is in a sense that it's an essence of the law distilled into a very short form. Secondly, this is a new command because it's a new and crucial part of the church going forward. He tells us just how important this command has become. This love for each other will be the sign to the world of belonging to Jesus. This will be the distinguishing mark of Jesus' followers, this love for each other. Now, just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Just as I have loved you. How did Jesus love them? What does love look like? Let me give you three ways in this section of scripture that Jesus demonstrated his love for his disciples both then and now look at John 13 1 through 11 remember I told you we'd come back to this John 13 1 through 11 before the Passover celebration Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave the world and return to his father he loved his disciples during his ministry on earth and now he loved them to the very end It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around them. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested, you'll never wash my feet. Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Simon Peter exclaimed, then wash my hands and my head as well, Lord, not just my feet. Jesus replied, a person who is bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean, but not all of you. For Jesus knew who would betray him. That is what he meant when he said, not all of you are clean. So when this dinner started, what did Jesus, the respected rabbi, the master, the patron, the the leader of the group, what did he do? He did the work of a slave. Normally, as part of a dinner, especially a formal dinner, uh, there would be slaves who would wash the dirt and the dust off your feet when you walked in in your sandals. Jesus washed those dirty, dusty feet of the disciples. He took action. Not just any action. He saw a need, and he took action to meet that need. He did it humbly and quietly. He didn't demand to be served. He became the servant. So our first definition of what love looks like is humble action. Now let's look at John 17, 20 and 21, John 17, 20 and 21. This passage is at the end of this upper room discourse. This is Jesus praying, and he says, I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you, are, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. What does Jesus pray for his disciples? He prays that they will be one even as the Father and the Son are one. Think about that for a minute. Jesus is saying that we should love each other as much as the Father and the Son love each other. That's what that oneness means. This speaks to the attitude of love. You're catching on. Action, attitude, the attitude of love. He prays that we will look at each other, think about each other, act toward each other, just like the relationship between the Father and the Son. The fact that Jesus prays this tells me that it's not an unattainable goal. We're able to grow into this attitude of love. So let's get practical What does this attitude of love toward one another look like? Here are some examples. When my brother calls, I'm genuinely interested in what he has to say. I ask questions, and then I follow up. The attitude of love says, I want to know about you, I want to care for you, and I want to know how I can help you. My brother sent me a text this morning saying that he was praying for me, knowing that I was going to be preaching this morning. He knew enough to know that I was preaching. He knew enough to know that I needed prayer. And he knew enough to know that I would appreciate a text from him saying that he was praying for me. If my brother is sad, I'm sad as well. If something really good happens, I rejoice with him. I celebrate when my brother goes through a time of great joy and seeing God at work. When my brother confronts me over my bad choices, I listen and hear his concerns. Rather than being angry or defensive, I humble myself and listen. That's part of the attitude of love. When my brother makes bad decisions that do not honor God, I am sad and I mourn. I humbly confront him about those bad choices. Now, why is this the attitude or why is this attitude the mark of a disciple? Why does this distinguish those who follow Jesus? Because it's so countercultural. It is so opposite to the way our natural inclination goes. It's not selfish. It's not defensive. It's not angry. It's not self-focused. This is such a contrast with what my natural tendency is. All right, so let's review. Jesus told us we should love each other just as he has loved us. How does he love us? First, he does the action of love. Jesus loved with humble service and washed feet. Secondly, he loves with the attitude of love. Jesus urged us to be one with each other just as he and the Father are one. Now, the third way that Jesus loved us, John 19, 30. When Jesus had tasted it, they're talking about the jar of sour wine. When Jesus had tasted it, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and released his spirit. He died. Jesus voluntarily gave his life to fulfill God's plan for us. He sacrificed himself for us. The ultimate sense of love was self-sacrificing. Jesus did not take someone else's life to bring our salvation. He gave his own life. He didn't hurt someone else. In love, he gave his own body to be broken. Now, a word of caution. We live in a broken world. And sometimes this idea of sacrificial love can be distorted. The love of Jesus is always about choices that I make to serve someone else or choices that I make to change my attitude about someone else. This love is never demanding. It's never something that I force on someone else. It's never a demand that I make on someone else to get something that I want. Here's something that makes me really sad. Sometimes this idea of sacrificial love is used to manipulate and control people. Please hear what I'm saying. This sacrificial love is beautiful, but only if it is giving willingly, never forcefully or demand. If you're in a relationship and someone demands that you submit, they're wrong. Please speak with Pastor Jeff or one of the elders about that, if that's a situation that you are a part of now. Now, let's go back to John thirteen thirty four. So now I'm giving you a new commandment, love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. How will we recognize each other in the body of Christ? We recognize each other by love. How will other people recognize that we're Jesus' followers? By love. Love has a texture, a smell that is unique and beautiful. You can tell love. So I ask you the question, what does love look like? (laughs) The answer is, Jesus. Let me ask you the question again. What does love look like? Love looks like action. Humble acts of service to meet a genuine need. Now, let me give you some examples of what this might look like for us. Meals for someone who's ill or just had a baby. I just heard from a good friend who was telling me a story that He was here in this area in graduate school. His wife had major surgery. He was working in grad school and had a seven-month-old child. This church got together and provided meals for their family for an entire month through the time that she was recovering from her surgery. That's what love looks like. Another example is hospitality for someone who has a need for housing. Sometimes love means opening your home to have someone come and stay with you. It may be financial assistance, rent or car repair for someone. It may even be giving money to beggars on the street. One of my friends once told me that if he gave money to 10 beggars, but only one of them was legitimate, it was still worth it because he helped one person in need. Secondly, love is an attitude. Love is learning to be one with the Father and with each other. Some examples of that include genuine concern and asking good questions. I just thought of Miss Mary. I don't know how many of you remember Miss Mary. Miss Mary had genuine concern and ask great questions about what was happening in our lives. And she prayed. Boy, did she pray. Genuine loving attitude also means confrontation sometimes. It means accepting criticism. It means listening. It means genuine rejoicing over someone else's success. Being really happy when someone's able to take a great vacation. That's part of that attitude of genuine love. Finally, sacrifice. Jesus gave his life so that you may live. What sacrifice can you make to help another live? How can you be part of God's magnificent plan in the life of your brother or sister? Sometimes even making a phone call can seem like that life-changing sacrifice. So what's God calling you to do this week? Let me ask you again, what does love look like? It looks like Jesus. He showed us by his humble actions, his connection to the Father through his attitude, and his willingness to sacrifice to accomplish the wonderful plan of God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you demonstrate very clearly what love looks like. You showed us exactly what you mean by this mark of love that we should bear. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fill each of us with your love. Help us to know your peace and your presence. And to live the life that you've called us to live. To demonstrate clearly your love to each other. And to a world that is desperately in need of love. Thank you for this time together and for the wonder of your truth. Amen.